From the studios of KPCW in Park City, this is Cool Science Radio. Science and technology that is accessible and entertaining. And if we can understand it, so will you. I'm Katie Mullally. And I'm Lynn Ware Peak. This morning, we speak with Sean Harding, Emeritus Professor of Cardiac Pharmacology in the National Heart and Lung Institute at Imperial College London about our vital organ, the heart, and the new science of this exquisite machine. Then we have a conversation with biologists Daniel Brooks and Salvatore Augusta about the hope for humanity's survival. But we will need to act with the rest of the biosphere and with each other in accordance with Darwin's principles of survival. Stay with us. We'll be back after these messages. Welcome back to Cool Science Radio. I'm Katie Mullally. And I'm Lynn Ware Peak. It has billions of cells, beats 100,000 times a day, pumping 7,600 liters of blood, and we literally can't live without this one thing. But the heart still holds many mysteries. Fortunately, thanks to the work of researchers and scientists, including our guest, we are starting to understand more about this vital and exquisite organ. Here to talk with us about the heart, its mind-boggling ability to function and adapt, and its real effect on our emotions is Sean Harding. Emeritus Professor of Cardiac Pharmacology in the National Heart and Lung Institute at Imperial College London and author of the new book, The Exquisite Machine, The New Science of the Heart. Sean, welcome to Cool Science Radio. Thank you, Katie. Thank you. Thank you for having me. First of all, I know we all take our heart for granted. We just think that it just works on its own, pumping blood around our body, and it just works until it doesn't. Does it do more than just pump blood? What does our heart do for us? So, so you're, you're quite right about it pumping on its own. You, you, your heart doesn't really need your body, just just as a matter of interest. I, I, when when I go to the operating theatre and I take some tissue from hearts that have been explanted, so people can have a better one. Sometimes they leave it on the side of the sink and it, it sits there beating away quite nicely by itself. It's self-sufficient, and um, uh, as I say, it, it, as I was uh, sort of, as you were saying, it really does more than you think. I, at one time, the heart was always thought to be the centre of emotion, and we understood that now that the brain is where you know all your feelings and thoughts are coming from. But actually, that's not quite right. The the heart has a, a little brain. In fact, really quite a large number of little tiny brains inside it. And it has both nerves that take instructions from the body, so the body can make it beat faster or slower, depending on what you what you need. Um, but it also can can inform the body about what's going on. And so, one one thing you could, you we can do is if you if your heart speeds up, you you kind of know you're something's going on. You're you're anxious or afraid. And this happens without your conscious intervention. It's the the another nervous system, a very basic nervous system that, that controls that. But your heart then can feed back to your conscious brain and inform the brain that this is what's going on. So uh, it can, if you if you play somebody a racing heart uh, sound, you tell them it's their own. They can become very anxious. They can even have a panic attack. Um, and it's because uh, when we were kind of in our evolutionary times and we were running away from saber-toothed tigers and things, you couldn't really stop 
And to let your brain think about it too much, you have to have something, a real accelerator to get you away. And after that, you, you kindly inform your brain, your heart kindly informs your brain that this is what's going on. So, so the, the emotional side of the heart can, can interact with the brain very, very specifically. It seems like the heart and the study of the heart is one of the last frontiers that we, when in the book you talk about how they started doing research on developing a, an artificial heart back when they were talking about going to the moon and we've mm. been to the moon and we've been to Mars, but we still don't have an artificial heart. So as you say in the title of your book, the new science of the heart, why is the heart so mysterious and how is it that we're still learning all of these new things? It has been, the heart has been um, honed by evolution. It's a fantastic organ. It has these, these huge numbers of cells, uh, these you know, sort of billions of cells. And these, they're all connected electrically so that when the electrical impulse flows down the heart, it pulls the heart into contraction and, and pushing out blood in a very beautifully coordinated fashion. And it can speed, it has, you know, changes that happens when it speeds up, when it needs to have greater force. It, it has a lot of inbuilt reflexes that do that. And, it, and it's very beautifully made much more reliable than any machine that I, you could think of. I talk about, you know, a, a washing machine going on for a thousand years to, 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 to be equivalent to what your heart does. But one of the things about it is because it's so beautifully constructed, then we as scientists have had great difficulty modifying it. One of the things we found out quite quickly and really couldn't understand for a long time is, is the heart has no regeneration in it, um, it, it or very, very little. So of those billions of cells, about half of them will stay with you from the moment you're born until the moment you die. And there's a very, very slow turnover, whereas you can see obviously your hair grows all the time, your skin, you cut from the skin and that, that heals. But the heart just doesn't do that. And you, you'd think... And it was so puzzling that that the heart, which is so vital, doesn't have that very basic mechanism in. And so, you know, a lot of the, the science we've done has been finding out that the heart is so great that whatever we do is a bit substandard and we can never quite either mimic it or modify it in quite the same way. If you're just joining us on Cool Science Radio, we're having a conversation with Sean Harding. She's written a new book called The Exquisite Machine, The New Science of the Heart. And Sean, one of the things that you do so well in your book is when you talk about when you first fell in love with the heart, your your heart felt for the heart. Yes. <laughs> I was trying to make that tie in somewhere, um, but you did, you fell in love with it. And, and it was when, you know, it was, you've been looking at the heart for 40 years. If you, you know, with, with the technology that we had 40 years ago, compared to the technology that we have now, how does it evolve kind of the feelings that you have about the heart and, and this new science and what can be done that you've always wanted to be able to do that you couldn't before? It, it, one of the big things is the imaging of, of the heart. Um, and the, I, I, more than the heart, I, I drilled down, I was one of the first people who could 
take out, uh, say, a piece of the heart tissue and get those individual heart muscle cells out. It's very difficult to do because they're, they're connected to each other like a jigsaw and they're electrically connected too. So you have to really have the right sort of solutions and technology to, to get them out. Once you get them out, you can see an individual muscle cell. It's about, you can almost see, or just about to see it with the naked eye. It's um, about, about the width of a human hair, the length of the cell. And it's like a long, thin brick with stripes on it. And if you put it in a dish and you uh, put an electrical current across the dish, you can get it to beat and it can beat for hours, days actually. Uh, and, and you can do those experiments on it. You can see and it, everything the heart does, it does too. And you can you can put adrenaline on it, it'll get uh, faster. You can stretch it, things like that. But the what's really developed is the imaging of that that cell. So we learned because we had the cell out, we could do many things to it. We could first we could just see it contract, and we could measure that. That's that was great. Then we can put fluorescent dyes in, and we can just see what's going on inside, so that when it's calcium that makes it beat. We've got a, a dye that make, goes flashes green fluorescence when the calcium goes up. And then you can see how much the calcium is going up. You can see some of the chemical reactions that are going on in the cell using a similar technology where you use two proteins with different fluorescences when they get close together there's a one kind of fluorescence when they get further away, there's another kind. So you can see them moving about near each other. You can go across the, the surface of the cell with a little probe, like a topographical map that goes up and down. And the surface of the cell is very bumpy. And you can get like a like a, a 3D contour map of, of, of the cell. And, and even now we've been able to go inside the cell with nano tweezers and pick out a molecule and pull it out again without damaging the cell. And then we, then, you know, we've answered many questions about how the, the, this, this uh, cell works and, and the underlying biology has been fascinating. Mm, that's really fascinating. Well, with all of this new screening, will we be able to not only sort of solve the the mystery of heart disease but in vitro for example do screening on a fetus's heart and make these corrections is this i don't even know to what extent that currently happens and and how has that advanced um yes that's that is done some some um there's some in utero uh, work where the fetus's heart is changed um, they can repair some defects, for example. Um, uh, the surgeons can refer, repair some defects. And that's often useful when the, so to, to get the, the baby to a certain stage and then you can do a full repair on these, these, these different defects. So the um, technology is amazing. You can, you, for, on adults now, you can put in valves and, and things without just putting it down a blood vessel. And they, they, they fold them up like an umbrella. And then when they get to the right place, they, they unfold and they fold into place very beautifully. So there's, there's the uh, technology is the surgical work is very advanced. Well, Sean, in the book, you talk about regular human hearts versus an athlete's human heart. And in Park City, Utah, we have an abnormally high ratio of Olympic athletes. So what is it about their heart that's different than just say a regular person's they've trained their heart probably to have a very low heart rate so they have very efficient heart 
with this this very uh, intense training, the heartbeat is slow, the muscle is is thick, although it's, it's very responsive and is very efficient in using the oxygen. It, it's interesting because I, in the book, I'm just thinking about athletes' hearts and. One of the problems with, oh, there are damage, is damage you can do to, for, to the heart through these ultra type of marathons or triathlons and things like that. So the adrenaline that, that sort of gets you running and keeps you going is can be damaging. Again, going back to our revolutionary past, you know, you had to run away from danger very quickly. If a couple of people had rhythm disturbances of the heart because of that, or you know, even cardiac arrests, well, okay, that was bad. But it, for the species to get away from the the, the danger was the, the main thing in an evolutionary sense. And so you often get uh, cases of athletes, footballers, for example, uh, collapsing on the football field with cardiac arrest, where the heart just goes into this very disturbed rhythm. So that's one thing that can happen. There's some, some more subtle damage, damage that can happen with adrenaline over a longer time that, that sometimes affects, uh, particularly cyclists, these very extreme cyclists. I, I hesitate to, to make too much of this in the book, though, because exercise is very good for people. I don't want to put every, you know, it wouldn't take very much to put me off exercise, but I'm very far away from any kind of ultra exercise, ultra marathon type of athlete that there are. So please exercise. But you know, there are some dangers when you go too far. Well, as a woman in her mid-50s who's been pretty active her whole life living in this mountain town, is it possible to make my heart even stronger after a certain age? Or does our heart get as good as it's going to get and then that's what you've got? No, no, cardiovascular exercise is, is good at any time. It's good even after you've been ill, even if you've got uh, had a heart attack, uh, even if you've got heart failure, you would be a bit careful. You, you know, you must be a little careful, but the exercise is good. And in fact, the good news is the best thing is to go is when you go from completely sedentary to some exercise that has a really big effect. Then it keeps keeps it keeps going on as you improve your exercise, your cardiovascular exercise. That's better and better and better for your heart. But that that particular thing of going from doing pretty much nothing to doing something is the real key. That's good to know. And I'd love to linger on this question a little bit longer because I have long wondered. You know, if you have three billion heartbeats in your life, I've thought, well. Even if our heart's efficient, if we're constantly bringing up our heart rate to do, you know, a marathon or, you know, a an eight-hour bike ride, <laughs> is it limited? And do is there such a thing? You know, the the big surgery in this town is to get your ACL repaired. You know, and it's a lot of times it's just an overuse injury, and finally it gives way. Is it in that same vein with the heart? Uh, well. Apart from perhaps to say the very extreme end, um, no, because what happens is your heart, your racing heart rate is slower. So of course that the the additional the number of beats on average, because you're not spending the whole day running, uh, is is lower when you when you've exercised. Of course, this whole thing about whether you have got a certain number of heartbeats that comes from the study of different animals. Because if you do a, a lifespan of an animal versus the number of heartbeats it has, it's pretty much 
the same for so you 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 you've got uh, the mouse has very 400 600 a minute uh, and it has a very short lifespan so if you add them up they've all they've all got this but whether that means anything is, is a, whole, a whole other thing or whether it's just a, a phenomenon you know that, that's related more to something like the mechanical structure of the heart or whether it really is that you've only got this number of heartbeats because <laughs> you know i do hear people using that as an excuse hmm. for not not to exit you know I've only no, got no, no, no. it doesn't work like that it, you're, it's, and in fact one of the, the the warning signs is if you've got a high resting heart rate so mm -hmm. if, if you're sitting down and your heart rates over well really over about 75 80 and particularly if it's going to 90 or 100 that's that is a warning sign if you've got a, a high resting heart rate that makes me think of another question about screening and about, you know, you hear of these tragic stories of some, you know, young person just having a major heart attack and dying and, you know, their heart had never been looked at. But mm -hmm. should we all be having our hearts looked at, screened, so we know potential problems that could possibly be fixed? Well, ideally, yes. Uh, one of the things about that is what you're often talking about is something that emerges at puberty. So pre-screening wouldn't really do anything, but um, uh, screening around puberty and uh, football teams in the UK do have uh, screenings for their footballers to, because of this. And, and heart um, mutations are relatively common. There are uh, so the the one that makes your heart thicken, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, pumps one in five hundred births. There's the there's one that's that's called titin, which is one of the longest proteins in the body. It's it's in in the cardiomyocytes. Um, when you look at people who have heart failure, about 25% of them have it because of a mutation in titin. But if you look at the healthy population, you find almost one percent of the population have this one of those kinds of mutations as well. And it, it was difficult to know how to interpret this finding for a while but what's emerged is people who have a mutation like this if they have a second hit if they have a second problem this could be either another genetic problem or it could be something particular things like pregnancy like chemotherapy or um alcohol really you know sort of even moderate levels of alcohol that these people are more likely to have go into heart failure if they have these relatively mild um, things that other people would would have no problem with, so it, you know, it, ideally there's a sort of there's a panel of at the moment about 170 heart mutations. Ideally, it would be good to look at those if if you could. I mean, so mutate that's right. And of course, as you get into your uh, 40s or so, particularly looking at your blood vessels looking to see whether you've got a blockage, any atherosclerosis. So you can do, it's possible to do those. With screening, the question always is, how many people do you save or how many people do you uh, have to screen? And it's a, an economical, economic thing. Well, another thing you talk about in the book is the fact that people can actually die of a broken heart. I mean, we've all felt the pain of disappointment and sadness, but people can die of a broken heart. Uh, Tell that, us more about that. Well, that is uh, literally and statistically true that there's strong emotion or strong physical stress. And again, we're talking coming back to adrenaline here. That is, is can be disturb the rhythm of the heart. And 
the bereavement, of course, is one of the most powerful uh, stimuli like that, emotional stimuli. And, and it's true that people do die very soon after their partners. There was um, Debbie Reynolds with Carrie Fisher or your children. You're statistically speaking twice as likely to die in, in the six months after your spouse has died than, than any other time. So it, it's a real thing. It's an absolutely real thing. Another thing you talk about, especially in, in reference to the new science, is the whole idea of gender reassignment. I mean, there's such a, we, we know there's differences between the male heart and the female heart, but what are they discovering as someone goes through a gender reassignment? How does that affect the heart? Or has this been going on long enough to really understand? Well, it's a question, I think, of whether it's been going on long enough and whether we've done the right things more than anything. But you would think, because gender, they, people are taking gender-affirming hormones. And so, uh, you know, you're getting the transition where people are taking estrogen to for feminizing effects and, and testosterone for masculinizing effects. And it doesn't track, the disease doesn't track with what you'd think. So people who are taking the male hormones don't seem to take on that burden of disease. Do we know that men, particularly in the younger ages, it doesn't. It, when you get to the menopause, it's it's different. But in the younger ages, that men are more vulnerable to to heart disease, and that's not happening in in these transitions. But and, and in the female male tr transitions, they're not getting the benefits of estrogen. They're not getting what you'd affect, you know, reduction in heart disease. Um, in fact, what they're getting is the thrombotic effects that you might get from the pill. And so they're more susceptible to thrombotic diseases. And as I say, we have not been tremendously good at, at the, with the hormone replacement therapy at getting exactly the right kind of hormones. We know very clearly, and we have an enormous amount of data, that estrogen is protective. But somehow we, we haven't managed uh, with HRT to properly translate that protective effect. And the data has been confusing and, and misleading, I think, in some cases. I think we're just not actually, we haven't got the cocktails right, probably. That's what it is. Well, Sean, one last question before we go, since you are the expert. What would be the one or two best things we can all do to protect our exquisite organ? Because although it can live without us, at least for a short time, we <laughs> certainly can't live without it. Well, I would say that the exercise, there's huge amounts of, of nice data on exercise now and any any exercise you can do is good so uh the, the, the cardiovascular exercise so definitely that the alcohol one is an interesting one it's it's not uh it's not quite as clear-cut as all that i think generally speaking reducing alcohol is a good idea there's a question about whether a small amount of alcohol they've always uh in many studies come out as better than being teetotal for the heart. So there is a little bit of play in that, but not, you know, just don't go mad. And then I would, you know, I'm a pharmacologist by trade, so I said, so I, I'm, I'm, all, I'm all with the drugs, and all the drugs have done enormous better good for, for the heart. So have your blood pressure checked and try to t take the drugs because they get to the point where, honestly, blood pressure increases with age. There's lifestyle interventions alone, there's not that much you can do about it. Some, some, you know, but not so much. Similarly, 
take the cholesterol-lowering drugs, the statins. Huge amounts of evidence that those are beneficial. And it's very interesting, um, there's been a bit of argument about the statins, but they do reduce cholesterol very, very well. But they have uh, some side effects in terms of muscle uh, muscle problems. Because the, there's been a great deal of, of reporting in the press about this, many people report side effects. But actually, if you give them a placebo uh, instead of a statin and, and they will report the same side effects when they think they're getting a statin. And similarly, if you give them a statin and you don't tell them it's a statin, they don't have the side effects. So about 90% of the side effects are what we call nocebo, which is the opposite of placebo. They're basically media generated <laughs> uh, anticipation of having a bad effect. So statins have had a bad press and, and they, but they're excellent drugs. Well, I think the side effect of not taking the proper drugs might be a little bit worse than yes. what you perceive you're getting. Our guest today has been Sean Harding, Emeritus Professor of Cardiac Pharmacology in the National Heart and Lung Institute at the Imperial College London and author of the new book, The Exquisite Machine, The New Science of the Heart. Sean, thank you so much for joining us on Cool Science Radio. Oh, thank you. It's been great talking to you. Thanks very much, both of you. Welcome back to Cool Science Radio. I'm Katie Mullally. And I'm Lynn Ware Peak. As a species, humanity faces existential threats from all directions, overpopulation, global climate change, and urbanization, just to name a few. But according to our next guest, there are novel and even hopeful ways to meet these challenges. But we must change the conversation from sustainability to survival. It begins with humans starting to act with the rest of the biosphere and with each other in accordance with Darwinian principles that center around figuring out how to survive. Joining us to share hope for our survival are Daniel Brooks, Professor Emeritus at the University of Toronto, and Salvador Augusta, Associate Professor at Virginia Commonwealth University and authors of the new book, Darwinian Survival Guide, Hope for the 21st Century. Daniel and Sal, welcome to Cool Science Radio. Thank you. Thank you. Let's start off with reminding our listeners and Lynn and myself about Darwin's theory of evolution and survival. The, one of the main things to, to know about Darwin's sort of panoramic view of the biosphere and the elements in it, the species that inhabit it, is that Darwin was primarily concerned with survival. He recognized that there were certain elements of conflict within the activities in the biosphere. Lions do eat zebras, for example, and cows do eat grass. But he was more concerned with survival and renewal, not so much with death and destruction. And he recognized that one of the things that happened when environmental conditions were, were stable or relatively the same for long periods of time was that the, during those periods of time, species tended to accumulate lots of variation. And that variation then became potential for coping with changes that would happen that, that happened in the environment later. Now, the species have no idea what changes are coming. And so there's no guarantee that the accumulated new variants that show up during the good times will allow them to be successful with coping with unknown changes. But given the fact that Darwinian evolution has never failed in 4 billion years, it seems to have been a pretty effective mechanism. So you two are both field biologists. How do you end up writing a book on the survivability 
prospects of the human race. Yeah, I mean, we started off writing a book about evolutionary theory, because that's where our, you know, our basic interests lie. And as fi uh, field biologists, we have a strong connection to evolutionary theory. It's the foundation for all of biology. And in writing this uh, book about evolutionary theory, we started to realize that for evolution to really be a theory that works for society, then we need to be able to make, you know, really explicit direct connections between how evolutionary principles impact the way we look at applied issues like sustainability and conservation. So it really was an evolution of our thinking from the basic theory of evolution to thinking about what are the lessons that we can take from evolutionary theory about how humans should be possibly doing things better. Yeah, a major thing that we found was we, we met for the first time when we were both working in a conservation area in, in Northwest Costa Rica in the early 2000s. Because we were out in the field in tropical environments a lot, we were seeing the impact of climate change on the local biodiversity, on the local ecosystems. But our perspective as, as field biologists was that we were most impressed by the fact that the biodiversity was coping with those changes. The biodiversity was not being destroyed. Things were not falling apart. Nothing was, you know, there was no big climate change apocalypse in those ecosystems, but there was a lot of change. And ultimately the crossover from Darwin's fundamental message to humanity today is that evolutionary biologists teaches us that the way to cope successfully with changing conditions is to change not to resist the change. And to maintain the potential to change. In evolution, there is no such thing as deficit spending. You know, even though organisms are constantly exploiting their environments because of the way evolution works, because of the nature of inheritance, uh, there's always a maintenance of potential to do something new if the conditions change. And so in thinking about that evolutionary principle and applying it to the way that humans interact with each other, with the biosphere or economic systems, you know, the message is pretty straightforward. You spend everything all at once, or you grow the fastest all at once, or try to be the biggest all at once, you're not planning for the future. If you're just joining us on Cool Science Radio, we're having a conversation with field biologists, Daniel Brooks and Salvatore Augusta. They've written a new book called A Darwinian Survival Guide. Daniel, let me ask you this, you know, as field biologists and as you, you know, you're talking about being up in northern Costa Rica and seeing how climate change has created change in the biosphere, in the species and, and how those adaptations may or may not be occurring. What do you think has been so far our greatest departure from, you know, in terms of our interaction with the biosphere? Yeah, that's interestingly enough, that demarcation comes about 15,000 years ago. You know, up until about 15,000 years ago, human beings were a very clever, very successful, widely distributed species that was behaving in accordance to with Darwinian principles. When conditions were good, they stayed in place. When conditions changed and they could no longer stay there, they simply moved away and found better living conditions. But starting about 15,000 years ago, human beings embarked on what is now called the Anthropocene epoch or period or whatever you want to call it. 
But that's marked by the point at which human beings began to believe that they could control all of their surroundings, they could control the world for their own purposes. And that, that was marked initially by the emergence of what we call high production agriculture. So this is a period when human beings begin to produce more than they need and begin to attempt to control everything in their surroundings. And of course, you know, our attitude is, is so how's that working out? Doesn't look too good. So we sometimes say the biosphere has been around for 4 billion years. Human beings of some form or another have been around for 3 million years. Anthropocene humans, modern humans, have been around for 15,000 years and we're already in trouble. So clearly from an evolutionary standpoint, what we're doing is not working. And the fact that we're a very clever species is probably explains why we've gotten as far as we have, but we think our luck's run out. And we're at a point where the amount of technological innovation it would take to try to overcome our attempts to alter biology is greater than the amount of time we have before events overtake us. I'm wondering, Daniel, as a follow-up to that, how often you are talking to lay people out there at a party or something. And you mentioned the 15,000 years that we've been setting ourselves in this incorrect trajectory. And the way you explain it, comparing it to how long humans have been on, on the planet, you know, it does set the correct perspective. But how often do people say, hey, we've been surviving for 15,000 years doing what we're doing. We're going to figure it out. And then what do you say to that? That's a really, really good question because that's a very common reaction. That's sometimes also coupled with, well, my kids will figure it out and I'll be dead and I don't have to worry about it. Okay, so this is an expression of a fundamental aspect of human psychology, which is denial. What it really means when somebody says that to me, what they really mean is we know there's a problem, we're afraid, we don't know what to do about it, so we don't want to talk about it. So we'll pretend that this is not true. So the idea that human beings have always coped with problems in the past quite successfully. This is not true. For example, one of the, the things that we're concerned about is the idea that urbanization, large crowded cities in climate insecure places is a bad idea. Now we're already seeing people realize that to a certain extent, but one of the things I tell people say at, at social gatherings is, we would not have a discipline called archaeology if it were not for the fact that there are more abandoned cities on this planet than there are occupied cities on this planet. So you go back to this a little bit snarky question, which is how is it working out? You know, what you're doing, what we say is business as usual is not working. Inaction is not an option. So we need to try something else. And our suggestion is that since there's only one theory of survival, that science has come up with, maybe we might want to apply that a little more directly to what's going on in the world. Sal, in the book, one of the main premises of the book is to switch the conversation from sustainability to yeah. survival. So what does that actually mean for people? Because I think a lot of people would think, well, if I'm sustainable, aren't I just automatically surviving? Like Daniel just said, it's well, not yeah. working. Well, this is the argument that we make that to the extent that sustainability 
is the idea that we just need to figure out how we can do less of what we're doing or do it more efficiently or somehow do it more equitably. And by doing that, things are going to return to normal, whatever that means, and everything will be okay. Uh, I think what we're saying is we need to question that in the first place, because that's basically saying if we do business as usual a little better, then everything will be okay. However, if the fundamental problem is our fundament is our behavior in the first place, then it brings into question, well, what, you know, what set of behaviors are actually survivable before we start talking about what's sustainable? So, you know, what we're saying is uh, not that we need to uh, not be talking about sustainability, but first we need to define what's survivable. Basically, we can't blow up the planet, right? And we can't have such an effect that it completely restricts the planet's ability to cope with change by changing. Those are the two main things. And then once you know we understand what's survivable, then we can start talking about uh, what's sustainable. In the book, you talk about how millions of years ago, hundreds of thousands of years ago, humans were more adaptable and changeable. But yeah. it's been in the last, let's say, even just the last 15,000 years, we've dug our feet in and we are not changing what yeah. happened? Well, I mean, again, and this goes back to uh, what Dan was saying to build on that. But I, I think a really nice way to think about the problem that we uh, use in the book is if we think about human beings as being the quintessential uh, central place foragers, right? This is what humans di did about the landscape. They move into an area, use up resources, deplete those resources, and move on like beavers, right? We talk about beavers in the book. They're the classic central place forager. This is what beavers do. They move into an area, they you know, they engineer the ecosystem to their own benefit. They deplete resources. And from their perspective, you know, the environment is trashed and they move on. And this is what humans did. And so 15,000 years ago, when we decided to basically, you know, settle down and stay in place, we became sedentary but we never abandoned our central place foraging activities. So for 15,000 years, we've essentially been central place foragers using up all the you know, resources in, in an area without leaving. And so what evolved? You know, what evolved was an entire mentality, entire set of behaviors that are about, we're not abandoning this place. And uh, if conditions change, then we're gonna look to our neighbors to see what we can take from them, perpetual warfare, and or we're going to start thinking about what new technologies we can develop to to save ourselves from, you know, from the worst outcomes of the change. And slowly but surely, we now live in a world where essentially, you know, the mentality is not that the climate's changing, so let's move, but the climate's changing, so let's stay. So this all sounds pretty much, well, pretty dreadful, frankly. And yet, the tagline of your book is hope the 21st century. So Sal, there is hope. Tell us where, where that hope comes from. Well, the hope again comes from looking at it from a Darwinian perspective. Evolution tells us that first of all, we, we, don't, we don't have to be the best. We just need to be sufficient to survive. So there's hope that we actually can cope with the change that's coming. If we again, recognize it. If, if we look at it from an evolutionary standpoint, we recognize that we actually have a lot of evolutionary potential to respond to climate change if we were behaving more like, you know, the traditional evolutionary uh, default of you cope with change by moving away, for example. 
So there's hope in the sense that these principles could guide us through climate change by being prepared to cope with what comes, or if we don't and everything just collapses, then there's hope that these principles could be used to rebuild something more sustainable. We have to recognize that we already have enough technology to take care of ourselves if we want to. What we don't have at the moment is a sustained will to change our behavior. Okay, so instead of using our technology to try to see which, which local society, which country can climb on top of everybody else and sustain themselves at the, at the detriment of other people, instead of, of using the technology for that, if we use the technology to achieve as much as we can without hurting the welfare and the well-being of other people. In other words, hurting the well-being of other people is tantamount to reducing their evolutionary potential, which means we're, we're decreasing our ability to learn from other people things that might help us survive. And so as a, as a consequence, what we, we call this, uh, or we use the term, we didn't, this is not our term, but we say that the, the challenges facing humanity right now are what's called a no technological solution problem. In other words, technology is not going to save us. And that's okay because in fact, we already have sufficient technology to take care of ourselves, to cope with these changes by changing. But the way we have to change involves changes in individual behavior. I'm just going to add one last thing to the idea of hope. If you listen to the climate change rhetoric or dialogue or discussion, it's basically either we have to stop climate change uh, right now, otherwise it's going to be total disaster. And that's, you know, uh, or we're, we're not going to do anything uh, and, you know, it, it, it doesn't matter. I mean, it's sort of one of those two things, right? And basically what we're saying is that it's not just, we're not facing complete annihilation from climate change, and we actually don't need to stop or reverse it to cope with it. What we do need to understand is that it's coming, and we need to be prepared, and we're going to need to change our behavior. And there's a lot of hope in the sense that there is the potential to deal with climate change. The biosphere is not going to collapse. It's just that our technological world might, uh, you know, suffer immensely if, uh, you know, if we just ignore it, basically. Mm -hmm. So, Sal, what would be an example of a behavior that you list out in your book that we can change, a behavior that we that we may not know about now or that we know about but are too lazy to practice? Or maybe lazy is not the yeah. word. But... <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I honestly think that question can be summed up with, you know, one answer, basically the concept of living within your means. Right? That's the fundamental behavior that if was more widespread on the planet, especially at an individual level, you know, in all the developed countries of the world, if the vast majority of people started taking on the personal mantra of living within your means, and you start making personal decisions based on that, and you start making decisions based on your family, and you start voting for people based on these principles, then, you know, I think that's the fundamental. And there's a lot of different behavioral details we can talk about, but living within our means is what we have not been doing for 15,000 years, essentially. 
Well, one of the great things about this book, it's such a fascinating book on so many levels, but you guys actually present a solution. So many times books are like, here's all the problems, but you guys come up with, you present the four laws of biotics. Daniel, will you give us a summary if you can? And my first, and, and a follow-up question is that on the four laws, the first one is a zeroth law. Why did it not start at one? Okay. Well, that, yeah, the, the, <laughs> the structure of this and the original inspiration for this came from uh, Isaac Asimov's foundation, uh, not trilogy novels, the original trilogy. And he proposed in parallel, he had a whole series of novels about robots and the basically this, these were early novels about AI. And he proposed, originally proposed what he called the three laws of robotics, one, two, and three. 30 years later, he, he wrote some sequels to that and he realized at that time that there was a more fundamental law than the three laws that he had proposed. And he saved himself by proposing the zeroth law in analogy with the, the, the laws of thermodynamics. Originally, there were three laws of thermodynamics and then somebody realized, well, wait a minute, there's a much more fundamental thing. But by that time, everybody was teaching the first, second, and third laws of So the physicist just said, we'll call this the zeroth law because it's more important than the other three. And so, and we talk about, we, we mentioned this in, in both of our books of where we got this inspiration. So the zeroth law of biotics is basically, you can't blow up the planet. In other words, you blow up the planet, then we've got nothing to talk about in terms of survival or sustainability or anything. So that's in, in that sense, it's, it's the before anything else, don't blow up the planet. Then you get into the, the next three laws. The first one of those is, is the fundamental idea about maintaining the maximum amount of evolutionary potential in the biosphere possible. Don't do things that limit the biosphere's potential. And then the next two, the final two, the second and third laws are about how humans can survive and be sustainable within the context of, of that. So that's, that's, that's where, that's where it came from. And they're, you know, these four laws are not, they're not like Newton's laws or anything. They're, they're as, as, uh, as we know from the pirates of the Caribbean, these are more like suggestions that these are guidelines. They're more like guidelines than actual laws, but it's an attempt to show that sustainability need discussions of how humans will sustain themselves uh, have to be put in a context of, of basic survival. And that means coping with change by changing, not coping with change by resisting change or pretending silly things like we can stop climate change, we can reverse climate change, in a sense, that's what we've been trying to do for 15,000 years, and it's not working. Let me ask one more question before we let you guys go. So much of the book, you talk about the myth of control that we humans think mm -hmm. we have. How do we get past this idea that we actually have any control whatsoever? Well, one way is that we uh, learn the lesson the hard way. <laughs> <laughs> and are shown that we actually don't have any control. I mean, the other way is education, the more people come from a background of understanding complex systems, understanding evolutionary systems, understanding that, you know, a complex system is by definition, a dynamic system that 
constantly changes, you know, its feature is perpetual novelty, not staying the same, then that's a way maybe to get that point across. Yeah, we need we need to let people know that we don't have to have absolute control in order to survive, be comfortable, be safe, have food, have water, have shelter, and 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 have the the benefits of of what our technology has given us. That control is not the only way to survive. And and ironically, the more we try to control in terms of, of trying to stop change, the more precarious our, our existence is going to be. In fact, the way to be in control is to recognize, number one, that we're not in control, <laughs> but to be in control in the sense of that we're anticipating and are comfortable with the fact that things are going to change and we're going to need to cope with that change. Yeah. You know, if that if that mentality, let's say, swept humanity versus what can we do to stop change, change is bad, uh, you know, that I think would go a long way also to making an impact. Well, I think one thing our listeners all have control over is actually going and getting this book because it is a fascinating, important book that I think everyone should read. Well, our guests today have, have been Daniel Brooks and Salvador Augusta. They are authors of A Darwinian Survival Guide, Hope for the 21st Century. Sal and Daniel, thank you so much for joining us on Cool Science Radio. This is an important discussion that needs to keep going. Thank you very much. It was very cool. You can also find our archive shows under the Shows tab at kpcw.org and Cool Science Radio. We keep all of our archive shows there. Also, we podcast this show at KPCW Cool Science Radio. Join us next week for Cool Science Radio. We speak with longtime National Public Radio science correspondent Nell Greenfield-Boyce. She'll join us to talk about her new book. It's about the intersection of life and science. It's called Transient and Strange. Then Lisa Thompson from the Natural History Museum of Utah joins us. She is an exhibit developer and interpretive planner, and she's just developed there the nat nat excuse me, Nature All Around Us exhibit. Now she's just released a new book. It's all about finding the wild where you live. It's called Wild Wasatch Front. It's an urban nature guide. And then coming up in March, we have the... Uh, the, the fundraiser pledge drive March 7th but then after that we've got a fascinating conversation about orbital space debris and its possible effects on the ozone layer and the magnetic field a little shocking to listen to and very shocking to listen to but interesting as well and please support us uh, if you listen to cool science radio you'll want to tune in if you've you know learned those random wonderful science facts that we so often bring forth on this radio show. Give us a call during the pledge drive because we need your support. And again, thanks for tuning in to Cool Science Radio here on KPCW Park City 93.3.